0: Let's pray. Father, that's our heart's desire this morning, that your spirit would fall on us. It would fill us. It would change us and transform us. As we open your word this morning, would you be living and active there? Would it go to the places of our hearts that it needs to go? Would you overcome any resistance that's there? Would you heal? Would you forgive would you encourage and sharpen, would you make us more like Christ as we leave this morning and enable me as your messenger to speak clearly. Pray that your spirit would take that word and apply it to each of us, each of our different circumstances of life, so that we would know that you are alive and well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you would open uh, your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Um, Chad had mentioned uh, I spent a couple weeks in Orlando taking some classes, uh, approximately uh, 65 hours in class time and lectures in the last two weeks, so I'm really excited to share all this with you, so don't worry. <laughs> uh, Glad to be back. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. We're going to look at this account of Saul's conversion. Acts 9, 1 through 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing, Uh, a few years ago, when I was a freshman in college, just a couple of years ago, it was the first two weeks. <laughs> Somebody's laughing. there, The first two weeks in school, I remember very distinctly. I was I was there. Uh, new situation, as many of you can imagine. As a freshman, um, I was in the weight room working out, trying to get big, as they say. Uh, it didn't work. Um, but in the in the context of that that time, I was working out. I, I ran into a guy. I, struck up a conversation with him. His name was Mike. Mike, we started talking about whatever. I don't even remember exactly at the time, but somehow the conversation moved into the area of faith. And I was a believer at the time, didn't know exactly what I needed to do or how to walk, but I was a professing Christian. In that conversation, he proceeded to invite me to a small group Bible study. Uh, In the Bible study, and I remember going at the time, this is kind of strange, you're inviting me to a small group Bible study, this place off campus. Um, I was a little skeptical. Then he went on to say it was with a group called Campus Crusade for Christ. I was even a little more skeptical at the time. And that whole week I wrestled with what I would do with this invitation to come to this small group Bible study. Had no idea what to expect. Somehow I found myself showing up at this little house in Kirksville, Missouri to this Bible study. As I showed up, there were four or five guys. Actually, there were five men in there and Mike who was leading the study. As I look back on my life... That moment, that conversation, that incidental, in quotes, conversation with Mike Lindblom that afternoon was a pivotal point in my life and my walk with Christ. I was looking, I was wondering how I would walk with him at college. And this conversation was an answer to prayer. And it was, as I look back, there was a lot that got it done up to that point. But that intersection with that individual was so significant that I can't even explain the importance of it as I stand here today. Now many of us, probably all of us, have had those kinds of incidental conversations with people. Interactions that that God has sovereignly brought us in context with. As we look back and we say, this conversation, or that time I met that person here or there, we could go on and on. If we were to take the whole day, we could share about those pivotal points in our lives that God intersected, our lives, by his grace, and as a result of a person that he brought into our lives. Our lives are changed by God's power, but because of a person that God used in our lives. As we look at the passage this morning, this passage of Saul and his conversion, I want to use a lens to see a variety of things we can read as we look at this. Lots of times we focus on the the extraordinary aspect of his conversion, and Christ revealing himself in the lights, in the blindness and the word from from Christ himself and yet what I don't want us to miss before and after this extraordinary event are two ordinary events in which God uses people to transform Saul and to bring him to faith this is the lens I want us to remember as we look at this and as we discuss this how God uses people I want us to remember those people that God has used in our lives those people that have crossed our paths in God's sovereign by his grace that God has used in our lives. And I want to challenge us to remember that God continues to work in the same way, that he still uses his people in the process of transforming lives. It's his power, it's his grace, but he uses us. The book of Acts um, is, a, is a, a beautiful story of Christ working out his church, of him growing his kingdom uh, there's one main character, and you all know the main character of this book. It's the same answer that, to every question that Bill asks you. It's Jesus. Even though he ascends in chapter 1, he is present throughout the entire story as he is growing his church. There's one main character. This is not a random uh, sequence of events. If you were to read through the whole book, you would find that there's order. And that Luke, as he writes this book, he's he writes this account of the church's growth... There's great intention as he puts on display what Christ is doing and Christ's presence in and through his people, through the Holy Spirit at work. There's many characters, there's much drama, but there's one theme, and the theme is Christ is growing his church. Through whatever else comes up against it, nothing will stop it. And in fact, what happens, God in his grace superintends everything, good and bad. It's engulfed in the will of Christ, brings about the saints' good and the church's growth. Persecution and peacetime. There's imprisonment, there's great growth, there's corruption on the inside of the church, and yet throughout it all we see the church is growing and expanding through the difficulties as well as through the good times, because that's what Christ intends it to do. The theme that brackets the book, if you were to look at the very beginning of the book and end the book, is the kingdom of God. The plot, the, the, the table of contents is the verse, Acts 1-8, where Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Then he tells us where you're going to be my witnesses. He says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He says, You will be my witnesses in Lawrence, Kansas, in Douglas and Jefferson County, and then to the ends of the earth. And in fact, that's what Luke shows for us. That's exactly how. Christ grows his church. As we come to Acts chapter 9, uh, a pivotal turn in the story. It's pivotal in at least two ways, right? One, it's pivotal for the church. As Christ is growing his church, he ambushes, he arrests this man named Paul who is on the way to Damascus to arrest Christians. Christ meets him on this road, this three-day journey up to Damascus. And Christ meets him right there. And it's pivotal in the life of the church as he takes this man who was such a an antagonist against the church, angry, attempting to, to to thwart the church in any way he could, and he turns him. It's like taking the best player on one team and saying, "I'm going to take him, I'm going to use him on my team." And God arrests him and takes it and signs him, if you will, to his team. And the church, as a result, grows because of this conversion. But let's not miss; it's pivotal in the life of the church but it's pivotal in the life of Paul. Can you imagine going, being so dead set against killing and people and imprisoning people who, would, who were professing believers, and in one day, in, in a matter of a few days, all of a sudden preaching the same message that you were so adamant against? We see a pivotal point in the life of the church as well as in the life of Paul here. And Luke accounts this for us couple things I mentioned before. One, we, we have this extraordinary account of, of lights and, and Christ showing up. I'm sure if I were to ask you, if anybody has had this kind of experience, you'd raise your hand. I'm not sure we would see any hands. Uh, there was an essential aspect of, of uh, Jesus meeting Saul on this road and, and revealing himself in this way in terms of the preparation for his ministry, what he would have. But let's not miss that Christ doesn't end with this kind of extraordinary revelation to Paul, but he finishes it off and he uses people in this process. The fireworks of Christ's supernatural revelation to Saul, it's essential, but let's not miss that God uses people in the process of changing lives. He wants to use us to do his work. We, saw, we see Ananias in this passage and we're going to spend some time looking at him and how God used him in Saul's life, but even as Ananias knew exactly what God had called him to do. He says, go here. There's another person, I think, to understand what's happening in chapter 9 that we must look at and to see the, the, um, the way that God used the person of Stephen a chapter earlier in the life of Saul in preparing his heart for this conversion, for this time in Acts chapter 9. As Stephen's impact on Paul, we'll see that it's indirect. He doesn't know what's happening But nonetheless, God uses his life and he exposes Saul to something that he just can't escape. So look with me over in Acts chapter 7, the end of Acts chapter 7. I want to tell you just a little bit that Stephen, we don't have a a lot of time on this, but let me tell you that, that Stephen is a man that's described in Acts chapter 6 as a man full of faith, full of wisdom, full of power. He was chosen by the church early on to be a servant of the church Um, to to serve them and then in Acts chapter 7 what we have is really a defense a message that Stephen gives to the church or he gives to um, excuse me the the Jewish rulers of the day that he gives them a message in what he's doing in this message in Acts chapter 7 he is explaining his view of the law and his view of the of the temple as they're indicting him for this, he's really on the witness, he's on defense, he's given a defense of that. And as we come to the end of the chapter 7, what we see, his goal isn't just to defend himself, but in the context of these people who are accusing him of thinking wrongly about the law, of thinking wrongly about the temple, he turns the tables on the people who are accusing him, and he accuses them. And if you look with me in verse 51, you see what he says to them and how he approaches them. It says, That's chapter seven. Stephen says, You stiff necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so did you. Which of the prophets did your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You see what what, uh, his accusers there of Stephen, what their what he, or what Stephen is saying there, he's accusing them not just of their beliefs, but their hearts. He says, your hearts are hardened. You're uncircumcised in heart and ears that you can't hear what's true. And so he says, the very law that, that you were given and that you say that you keep, you actually violate. And so that's, that's the accusation that Stephen, Stephen levels against his hearers. And then you see their response in verse 54. As he accuses them, Verse 54, and now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. And then you see his response, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed at him, together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. You see his response, their response to him, right? You see, it's not just, you know, I disagree with your beliefs. He was indicting their very hearts, and they could not stand that. And with great anger and malice, they threw him out of the city, and they stoned him. And this is where Luke does an interesting thing in the story. He tells us one person at least who is there and present involved in the end of verse 58, right? He says, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Luke says, guess who's standing around here? And if you're reading through the book of Acts, this is the first mention of Saul. And you might say, well, well, who's that? And Luke just wants us to know that Saul is present at the stoning of Stephen. And in fact, he is endorsing it. Although he might not be throwing stones, he is a part of what's happening there. He is a part of the stoning of Stephen. He's present there. And if, if you were Saul and we were able to look at that scenario, and we would ask the question, what is it that Saul saw? What is it that he saw? What did he experience? I'm going to make a connection here in just a minute about his experience there at Stephen's death and his stoning and the connection that took place with his road to Damascus. But we need to ask the question, what did he see? What did he experience? And there's just a couple things I want to mention by observation. First of all, Saul heard, perhaps for the first time, a thorough message, an explanation of the gospel from Stephen. In chapter seven, okay, he heard perhaps for the very first time, the gospel laid out in its connection with the Old Testament. It's a connection with the law. It's connection with the temple, and then how everything was fulfilled in Christ. So he heard a message of the gospel that Stephen gave on his defense. He explains the message of Christianity. So Saul hears this. Secondly, we can't help but know that in his participation with the stoning. That the same thing that everybody else was hearing and feeling he was. The accusation of his heart. The indictment of his heart. The indictment that you say you obey the law. You say you uphold it. But you actually violate it. The very thing that you say you hold valuable. You actually violate it. As he looked at his own heart. He saw hatred and malice towards Stephen and his actions. We can't help but think that God was using this time as he looked and he saw. And he wondered, is this really true? And he wrestled with that. The third thing that he saw is unexplainable. It is the death by grace of God of Stephen in this way. Look in verse 59 and 60. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to the, his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Saul watched um, Stephen die. He watched him brutally killed and his last words were Lord don't hold this against them how do you explain the unexplainable how do you explain a person dying like that if you're saw and you're looking at this you're going I don't know a statement that Bill Clinton President Bill Clinton once made regarding Mother Teresa he said it's difficult to argue with a life lived well It's difficult to argue with a life lived well, but I think another way that we might say it's even more difficult to argue with a death that's died well. And you see in the situation here, you see that Stephen dies well, looking to Christ, not angry or bitter. And so we understand that Saul experienced this. He heard the message. He felt conviction of his heart, and he saw something that he couldn't explain. He couldn't get out of his mind. Another another way that we can look at this as we understand how does this connect with our passage? How does this connect with what's going on? A couple things that's important to note. First of all, um, God does nothing on accident, especially when it involves the suffering and the dying of his own. He does not do that on accident. There's purpose always in what he's doing. And in the suffering and the death, the sacrifice of Stephen, believe the seeds were being planted that would be reaped later. Another place to look, we see that that Paul in his own story tells us a little bit about this. And if you would look real quick with me in Acts chapter 26. We see in Acts chapter 26, this is later in the story of Acts, Saul's name has been changed to Paul and he is before King Agrippa and he is giving basically his testimony He's giving his defense as he is on trial for the same things that Stephen was on trial for. He is giving a defense. And what does he do? He talks about his call, this, this Damascus Road experience that he has. And in verse 14 of, of Acts chapter 26, he gives us just a little more information about this that's helpful. And when he had fallen to the ground, that's, and I'm sorry, when we had all fallen to the ground, this is Paul speaking. I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And we have that in the passage that we just read. But then we have this line added that that Paul gives us. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And then he tells on with the rest of the story. And the, the question we need to ask is, what does that mean? He adds that to the story. And what we have is Christ there making this statement it is difficult to kick against the goat. Now, what exactly is that? I I am not a farmer. I don't claim to be a farmer. But my understanding of what a goat is, it's it's a poke or a prod that's intention is to generate some sort of pain to change the will of a stubborn animal. And it's to align the will of a stubborn animal to the will of its master, okay? That's what a, a goat is. It is its intention is to bring about pain. It's to, it's to bring about a kind of pain that will be helpful and beneficial in the life of the person. Okay? And as we look at this situation, the goad, he says, it's difficult to kick against this. The implication is what? I'm doing something in your life. The implication is, why is it difficult to kick against the goads? Think about it. The harder you kick, the more pain there is. The harder you resist, the more pain that's exerted as a result of the goad and you see the great pain that Paul was experiencing and even as he's traveling this road that there's something going on in his heart there's something at work in his life and he's wrestling with the truth and I believe I think scripture backs it up he was it was something he had saw something he saw in the person of Stephen the encounter with Stephen and his death was a memory which God used to cause to bring about a kind of dissonance in his life, to disrupt and to bring him face to face with something so unexplainable and enticing at the very same time. It's not a stretch to say that the faith of Stephen manifested in his suffering and sacrifice for Christ's sake is the primary means that God used in the, the writing of Saul's conversion, in the writing of his story, that you'll have in the mind of Saul what he saw and what he heard and what he felt at Stephen stoning. Stephen didn't know it. He had no awareness that, that God would use this. But in obedience, there he was. Instead of just trying to get out of it, he entrusted himself to one who judges justly. Questions for us today. So are hard questions um, for me to ask, partly because I'm not sure I can speak a great deal on suffering and sacrifice. I'm not sure many of us can in the sense of being stoned. We will probably not be drugged out of the city limits of Lawrence today and be stoned or anytime in the near future. But the question for us is how do we view suffering and how do we view sacrifice? How is it that we understand when difficulties come? Knowing that it's God who brings them upon us by his sovereignty and his grace. He brings them to us. The way that we suffer, the way that we deal with difficulties, whether we know it or not, demonstrates and witnesses to the truth and the power of the gospel. It puts on display the truth of who God is. To say, do I trust myself to this one? Will, is he good enough? As we work through it. There's no guarantee, of course, that the difficulties we walk through will produce the next great evangelist or prophet or preacher But we can know for certain that God will not allow the things, the difficulties, and the suffering sacrifice that we go through to be for naught. We know that he will use it in our lives, of course. And I think there's hope that he will use it as well as it puts on display who he is for those who would be watching. We don't do it for that purpose. We do it for him. And we endure and we walk through life in the circumstances fixed on him because I can trust him. And not knowing what he will do, just like Stephen didn't know what would happen, what the outcome would be. The same is true for us. As we suffer well, the truth and the power of gospel is put on display. Also, how well do we love people who hate us? How well do we love people who despise us? Do we treat them well even when they treat us poorly? You see a picture here in Stephen right at at his death. Lord, do not hold this against them. Create love and forgiveness even as he's being killed and brutally murdered by them turn to Act, or i'm sorry romans chapter 12 some words that that paul the same person we're going to read this conversion the same one that was present there writes these to the church in rome verse 14 of chapter 12 i'm going to read two verses here 14 and then jump to 19 paul writes this bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse them and then in verse 19 Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We have a picture here of Saul, the very one who was present as he watched Stephen do these things, instructing the church at Rome and instructing us. How is it that we respond in these circumstances? How do we respond to people Who despise us, who look down upon us, who subtly treat us poorly, we love them. We don't return evil for evil, but we overcome evil with good. And in so doing, we put on display the power and the truth of the gospel. As we look at Stephen's life, the seeds were planted in the experience of Paul and the words that he heard and what he saw in his death. As we come to the chapter back in Acts chapter 9, we see the, the extraordinary, again, this experience. Jesus meets him, intersects his life, turns his world upside down, blinds him, sends him to Damascus for three days. He's sitting there. And you've got to wonder, what's going on in his mind? What's he thinking? I mean, you've got to realize this is a, just a, a pivotal experience for him. And what does God do? He comes and he calls a man named Ananias. Now, we don't know anything about Ananias. Ananias. We're not sure who this guy is, and we don't know anything more about him. But he's a, he's a disciple. He's a follower of Christ in Damascus. And here's the story. Verse 10. And now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight at the house of Judas. Look for the man of, man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many things about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints, and he is here on the authority of the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. And then Jesus reaffirms this call. But the Lord said, Go, for he is my chosen instrument. A couple of things here as we look at Ananias. You know, we see the command to go to this place, go to this house, and and Jesus says, There's going to be a man there. He's from Tarsus, and his name happens to be Saul. I want you to go to him. And you got to wonder. you got Ananias sitting here, and he's going, oh, okay, you know. I mean, you read the text, and you go, they're just a, I mean, you almost read with a little bit of humor because you go, okay, let me get this straight. Okay, there's a guy named Saul, and he's from Tarsus, and you, you want me to go there? Uh, he's the same one who, you know, he killed, was a part of that stoning of Stephen. He's the same one who is taking and hauling Christians off and throwing them in prison. He's the same one who's coming here three days away to Damascus and they're extraditing them and taking them back to Jerusalem to try them and imprison them as well. Is this the guy you want me to go see? And then Jesus he doesn't doesn't, um, reprimand him, but he confirms it. He says, that's the one. That's the one I want you to go and I have a plan. And he says, he gives him just a little bit of a glimpse to Ananias. He says... Um, he's going to be my chosen instrument to Gentiles, to kings, and to the children of Israel. And you see the obedience of Ananias. He goes. He goes and he says, brother Saul, he believes what God, what Jesus Christ had told him there. And so he, he obeys Christ. And as we look at this account and we want to see how is it that God uses Ananias in this situation, I think the, the most fascinating thing at this point is we look at is that Christ uses Ananias, okay? He uses a person we don't know who he is. Jesus himself showed up to Saul Saul on this road. Could he have not finished the work right then and there? Why do you have to have the three days? Why do you have to have him going and showing up in a vision to this person named Ananias? Why is it that Jesus involves a person in the process of Saul's conversion, Because that's what Jesus does. That's what God does. He uses us in the lives of others to do his work. And in so doing, he tells us, he demonstrates for us, this is how I operate. Yes, it is me. It's my power. It's my work. But I use people. I use you in the process of doing what I intend to do. And you got to wonder, here's Ananias. He's having his quiet time in the morning, right? And he's reading his Bible. And all of a sudden, boom, he's got this vision. And Jesus says, I want you to do this. And he looks at, his, looks at his day timer and he says, you know, I'm, I'm kind of busy today, Lord. <laughs> what do you do with that? Jesus breaks in and says, I've got something for you to do. And can you imagine if he would have looked at his day timer and said, you know, I'm, I'm kind of full up today. Um, can this wait till tomorrow? Can you imagine what Ananias would have missed out on? He would have missed out on the opportunity of being a part of what God was doing in this man's life. And it was through his obedience to the Lord that he had the privilege of being and playing the role that Christ had for him in this circumstance. It was because he obeyed. Now, if he disobeyed, guess what? Christ is going to find somebody else. It's not going to change his plans, but what it changes is the out- It changes what, what uh, Ananias would get to be a part of. He would have missed out had he not. And the question for us as we look at this, As God brings people across our paths and opportunities, how do we see them? I mean, do we pull out our day timer and say, I'm kind of busy? I confess, that is a hard one. I do. I look at my schedule and go, I'm kind of busy today. And yet, are they opportunities that he puts in our path? Are they obstacles to our plans for our day? Are they problems to be solved? Are they people to be loved? Are they disruptions that we need to avoid? And the challenge for us is to realize that God wants to use us. And the way that we see opportunities that he places in front of us is important. As Ananias obeyed, so God calls us to obey as he brings opportunities our way. Now, something else that's important, I think, to read and to to kind of draw from this is is that as Ananias went, he had no real idea of the outcome as it related to him. There is no assurance as he goes that everything was going to be okay. He's still going to see Saul, and everything that he has heard about Saul is not good. And so he has no assurance of the outcome as it related to him, and God gives him none. As he goes, he knows the outcome ultimately as it relates to Saul. Jesus says, he is my chosen instrument, and he will do this, and yet he doesn't know. And I think for us, even as we move into circumstances and situations that God calls us in, There's no assurance exactly that the outcome that we're going to have is going to be nice and neat. I know many of you, I'm sure, have been in circumstances that you've moved into lives in an attempt to help, only to find not exactly what you intended, not exactly what you thought, some hard circumstances as a result of being obedient to Christ. And Christ does not promise that it's going to be easy. He does not promise it's going to be nice and neat and it will turn out and oh by the way you're gonna it's gonna you know you're gonna be safe he doesn't promise that to us but what he does promise is that he will use us in the process he promises that he'll be present with us as we go and in some way there'll be an outcome that honors him that brings glory to him as we obey God doesn't assure us of these out this outcome but by faith as we go as we obey him he will use it in our lives Faith enables us to obey and to remember, okay, to remember that the story that's being written there, if you think about the circumstances in our lives, it's not our story. Remember the main character in the book of Acts? It's not Jesus, right? Or it is Jesus, it's not us. The story that's still being written is about what he wants to do, and so we can't dictate the outcome. But something that Bill said a few weeks ago in his messages on faith, faith doesn't determine the outcome, but rather faith takes hold of the outcome as it's been ordained and determined by God. And as we go and as we step into people's lives, we can trust that whatever the outcome is, that God will use it for his glory and for our good. Obedience is necessary. Obedience as we subject to what he wants to do in our lives. Two people we see God using an extraordinary situation where Jesus shows up to Saul. We have Stephen through his sacrifice. Representing and demonstrating the gospel, we have Ananias coming directly to him in response to God's call in his life to say, to bring the gospel, the message, and to confirm, if you will, Saul in his conversion. Now the beauty of the story, the beauty of the book of Acts, I think this is the conclusion to every sermon in the book of Acts, and maybe it should be, is that the story is still being written. That this is a narrative of the work of Christ in and through his church and his people, right? the end of the book we have we have Saul sitting under house arrest and there he is waiting it's an interesting kind of ending to the book and yet that story is still being written here today the book has been closed but what Christ is doing in and through his people is still taking place and that should bring us great hope great hope that even as we remember the people whom God has used in our lives who he has used in those pivotal moments to transform us That we look back on and say, Wow, I'm so thankful for the way God used people. That he will and desires to continue to use us. But he uses us through the same way that we see in Acts. Through suffering, through difficulties, through obedience and going to him. How do we do this? I don't know. It's his grace that enables us. We look to him and say, would you give us what we need? But our heart is that as we go, as we obey him, We put forth the gospel message in our lives and our words that others will see and view something that can't be explained in ordinary kinds of terms. Something that they will see that will at the same time disrupt their lives by what they see and at the same time entice them and draw them to Christ. And that's that's what he's called us to be as his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look at your story and and we confess that uh, um, we would write it differently at times we would write these nice neat little stories of our involvement that don't involve uh, difficult things but that's not the way that you've written it it's not the way you've chosen to write it in any of our lives father would you remind us of that would you help us to remember um, that your gospel is being witnessed to in the way that we respond to difficulties. Would you remind us that your gospel is being proclaimed in the way that we react and respond to people who treat us harshly or who hate us? Father, would you enable us to obey you when you call us, even when it's inconvenient? Give us eyes to see and wisdom as we go knowing that you're doing something, even though we wonder at times what that is, that when we stand in eternity and look back, we will see the story being written, that it's about you and for your glory. Thanks for the little glimpses that you give us on this side of how our obedience ties into your kingdom-building work. Um, But when you don't give us those glimpses, help us to keep our eyes most of all on you. And remember that you're doing that work in our lives. Do it in our congregation, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys rise for the the benediction? The, The response to the benediction is, I will obey Christ, hallelujah. And when we say that, we say I will obey Christ, we're saying whatever you bring my way, the story that you're writing, that you want to involve me in, I'll respond to that, no matter what that might bring. Now receive this as our Lord's benediction to his people. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one mouth and heart you may glorify the God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, I will obey Christ. Hallelujah.